we were able to get into the phone because in an odd way that all the controversy and attention around the litigation I think stimulated a bit of a marketplace around the world which didn't exist before then for people to try and figure out could they break into an Apple 5C running iOS 9. That's FBI Director James Comey on his agency's efforts to hack into the phone of a terrorist after Apple refused to do it. The agency paid more than $1 million for the hacking tool that accessed San Bernardino shooter Syed Farouk's iPhone. Comey spoke about the case in London at the Aspen Security Forum Global. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Comey was on stage in April with Brooke Masters of the Financial Times. Besides Apple, Comey discussed the terrorism threat at home and abroad. He says the U.S. has a highly effective counterterrorism regime, but there are still vulnerabilities. Do you think something like what just happened in Brussels can happen here again soon? Sure, yes. It can happen anywhere. He says the Bureau has counterterrorism investigations underway in all 50 states and explains just how serious the risk is in various places around the globe. Set in the Grand Historic Banqueting House, the discussion also touches on cybercrime, an uptick in violence in U.S. minority communities, and Hillary Clinton's emails. Here are Brooke Masters and James Comey. I think we have to start with Apple. I mean, the whole question of encryption and the Apple phone has been dominating the headlines around the world. And, you know, everybody, I have an Apple phone. I'm sure you have, maybe you don't have an Apple phone, but just about everybody in the audience does. Um, so tell us, about, tell us about this. Well, first of all, how the heck did you get into that phone? <laughs> uh, they make fine products. I'm not here to pick on Apple or any other manufacturer. Uh, the, well, you, I guess you know some of the story, obviously. We, we brought the litigation, the Justice Department did, as part of our investigation into the attack in San Bernardino. And as I've said many times, and I'll say it again, we brought the litigation because we thought it was very important to get into the phone to competently investigate a terrorist attack. And I've said before, I thought we should have been fired if we didn't try to understand what was in a terrorist phone. We had the terrorists dead, obviously. We had a search warrant. The county, which was the owner of the phone, consented. But we got to a place where Apple, um, and I'm not questioning their motives, where Apple was not willing to cooperate to help us get into that, and so the Justice Department brought the litigation. Um, we were able to get into the phone because in an odd way that all the controversy and attention around the litigation, I think, stimulated a bit of a marketplace around the world, which didn't exist before then, for people to try and figure out could they break into an Apple 5C running iOS 9. And those details matter, obviously, because that's the phone that the terrorists left behind. And as a result of that stimulation, uh, while the litigation was ongoing, we didn't stop trying to figure out whether we could get in, but somebody approached us from outside the government and said, we think we've come up with a solution. And we tested it and tested it and tested it, and then we purchased it. And we were able to, once we knew it would get us into the phone, we were able to withdraw the litigation. And in my view, that's a good reason, good thing for a couple of different reasons. First, we got into the phone it's a very important part of the investigation. And second, litigation is not a great place to resolve hard values questions that implicate all kinds of things that all of us care about. And, and so it was a 
and the emotion and pain around that case was a bit of a distraction, frankly, from a more important conversation that I think we have to have. And so in that sense, it's also good that the litigation was no longer necessary. But I hope it doesn't lead people to stop talking about it. And from your question, it's clear to me people aren't going to stop. They shouldn't. They should continue to talk about it because we have a problem where all of us share a set of values that are in conflict. And we have to figure out how to resolve privacy and security on the internet and on our devices with public safety. And they're crashing into each other in terrorism cases and really all the work the FBI does. And I don't know exactly what the answer is, but we need an answer and we can't let ourselves drift. So I hope the conversation will continue. So that's the story of, of how we ended up getting into the phone. Um, and the investigation obviously continues, but this will be a feature of our work. There'll be other litigation, I'm sure, but it'll be a feature of our work increasingly um, over the months and years to come. So how much did you pay for this software? A lot. Really? More than I will make in the remainder of this job, which is seven years and four months uh, for sure. Wow. Um, and so it's a, uh, but it was, in my view, worth it uh, because it's a tool that helps us with a 5C running iOS 9, which is a bit of a corner case increasingly as, as the devices develop and move on to the 6 and 6S and whatnot. And iOS is, I think it's very, very important that we get into the, that device. Are you now crowdsourcing a solution to, say, an Apple 6 and a 6S? No, we, not yet. No, we have not. And that would, to my mind, that would be a, a, a regrettable place to be. Really? Where, for two reasons. First, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me that the way we're going to resolve a conflict that implicates values and our hardest work is that the government is going to try and pay lots of money to get people to break into devices and find vulnerabilities. That seems like a backwards way to approach it. And second, it's not scalable. Mm -hmm. That is, this problem is overwhelmingly affecting law enforcement. And so there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States, all of whom are going to find this problem affecting their work. And so us buying a tool for a 5C iOS 9 is not scalable, mm -hmm. uh, and nor could all of those departments afford to pay what we had to invest in this investigation. So I'm hoping that we can somehow get to a place where we have a, a sensible solution or set of solutions that doesn't involve hacking and doesn't involve spending tons of money in a way that's unscalable. Do you see a historical parallel that people could look to? That Have we had this problem before in any meaningful way? I think we have all kinds of problems like this that we've resolved in the past. Uh, one that was brought to my mind most recently was 20 years ago, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, banks were basically saying the world was going to end because the United States government and other governments were going to require them to scrutinize customer transactions and report those that were suspicious. And there was a lot of hue and cry at the time, a generation ago, about privacy and how would that work and how would we still be able to operate and what a terrible thing. It worked out just fine. Uh, people were able to continue to supply banking services that were prudent, and it actually um, made for better business for the banks. We dealt with this in the telecommunications context when Congress mandated the telecommunications companies in the United States provide access to allow court orders to be complied with. And at the time, again, there was a lot of concern. How would that work? How would that affect our business? And it was able to be worked out. And so I don't know what the future looks like. I, I'm keen to make sure that people don't think the FBI should say what the answer is here. 
I think our job is to say the tools you count on us to use in criminal cases, in terrorism cases throughout our work are less effective than you thought they were because of this problem. And we don't think democracy should drift. But we also don't think the FBI should say, here's how you should govern yourselves, any more than companies should say that. Right? Apple's a fine company. The FBI is a great organization. Neither of us should tell people how we should govern ourselves. This is a fundamental question about how we want to be. So I think our job is to say, here's how it's affecting our work. And maybe at the end of the day, the people in the United States say, okay, we're okay living with that diminution in your tools. You'll find other ways. Or maybe people conclude it's just too hard technically, which I don't buy. Or maybe people conclude we ought to find some other way to see if we can't optimize both of these values. Um, but it's a conversation we must have. And I, I'm an optimist. And so I hope we can have it not just on Twitter, not just on bumper stickers, and we can have it without anybody needing to hate anybody else. Um, I was speaking to a group of students recently, and I said, I hope we start this discussion from this place. I could be wrong. I could reason wrong. I could perceive wrong. I could be wrong. I hope you could be too. And if we start there, we can have a better conversation. So I'm, I'm working very hard to make sure people understand. Apple's not a demon. I sure as heck know the FBI's not a demon. We have a problem with a shared set of values that we have to sort out. You're tuned to a conversation featuring Brooke Masters of the Financial Times and FBI Director James Comey. They spoke as part of the Aspen Security Forum Global in London in April. Their talk, called The Complexities of Today's Security Challenges, opened the three-day event. Now, back to the conversation on stage at the Banquet House. Should we shift slightly into cybersecurity? Sure. And, um, I mean, part of this is actually sort of a natural evolution in that cyber terrorism and the use of the Internet to recruit as well as to conduct terrorist attacks is obviously very much on people's minds. I mean, how, how effective is the FBI against terrorism? How effective are our law institution, our institutions here in the U.K.? And how well do you guys work together? Well, uh, I think the counterterrorism work that we do in the United States, which is not just the FBI, there's a whole lot of other people that work on it, is very, very good. I never want to be satisfied that it's good enough. Um, one thing that's for sure is that our country and, and uh, the, the Brits as well and others took the pain of 3,000 people being murdered and responded to that by changing the way we are organized, we are resourced, we're deployed, we're trained, and we invested tens of billions of dollars to build a better counterterrorism capability. And I can only speak for the United States, which I know best, but the taxpayers' money bought something, which is a highly effective counterterrorism regime. And I think that's true in the UK as well. And, but we're not perfect. I mean, we face a threat that is increasingly hard to see, sometimes impossible to see when encryption comes into play, that is changing and moving at tremendous speed. And we live, as, as the citizens of the UK do, in a country that's big and free and open and diverse with lots of movement, all of which makes our life challenging. So we are very good. Um, we can never quite be good enough, frankly, given the nature of the threat. Um, the cooperation that we have in the US with our, our counterparts in the UK is simply extraordinary. Uh, it is 
it couldn't be more productive, couldn't be closer, frankly. And that makes good sense because the threat, we actually don't conceive of the threat as a threat in America and a threat in the UK. We see it as the same threat because we're always ever just a flight away from each other for terrorists as well as for good people. And so we are knit together very, very closely. And I think we're both very good. But again, you, you never want to say you're good enough given the nature of the challenge. Do you think something like what just happened in Brussels can happen here again soon? Sure, yes. It can happen anywhere. There are it's probably a sliding scale of risk associated with that in different places. I think the risk is lower in the U.S. for a variety of reasons, but we stare at what happened in Brussels and imagine it as our future that we have to work against. That it, it, it could be that the threat they're facing on the continent, and increasingly here uh, in the UK, is the threat that we could face two years from now. And we talk a lot and plan a lot and work a lot against that possibility. How has this threat changed in the two and a half years you've been FBI director? Uh, fundamentally, actually, the, the shift from your parents' al-Qaeda to the so-called Islamic State has all happened in my tenure. The, the al-Qaeda model, so a long time ago, say 2013, was focused on sophisticated, long-planned attacks with extensive surveillance, carefully vetted operatives, aimed at the symbols of the West. So for the United States, Washington, New York, airplane-based, national landmark-focused. And in a way, we had come since 9-11 to rely on al-Qaeda's culture, which was they must do the big thing. If they just shot a bunch of people in a restaurant, that would be a loss of face for them and a confession of weakness, in a way. Maybe sometimes we didn't verbalize that, but we actually relied upon that without knowing it, maybe. That was the al-Qaeda model. That changed starting really in early 2014 and accelerating 2014 with the growth of ISIL. And their change was fundamental in a number of ways. First, their mission was simply to attract people to their so-called caliphate or kill. Come or kill was the message to the United States. Come or kill. Kill anybody, kill anybody any way, with a car, with a knife, with an ax, with a gun. It doesn't matter if you can kill somebody in uniform, best of all, but just kill anybody in the name of the Islamic State if you can't come and become a soldier of the caliphate. That's the first big change. The second is the way in which they communicated that message made al-Qaeda look like your parents' al-Qaeda. They crowdsourced terrorism by pushing out that twin-pronged message, especially on Twitter, in a very, very slick way. And the message they were sending was one of ultimate meaning that to the people in this auditorium would seem stupid, but that resonated with troubled, unmoored souls, and we got our share of them in the United States. And the message would appear on their hip, or buzzing in their pocket, on Twitter, 24 hours a day, come or kill, find meaning, come or kill, find meaning. And then to make it more complicated, they would find people who were interested in traveling or killing on their behalf, and move them off the open platform of Twitter, if they were really live ones and willing to commit acts of violence, they'd move them to an encrypted app, a mobile messaging app encrypted end-to-end. -end. And so they're crowdsourcing terrorism, 
broadcasting a message of meaning 24 hours a day to troubled souls, and when they get one that's likely to act, that needle we've been looking for becomes invisible. That's a totally different model than we've ever seen before. And so they started investing in this 2014. We saw the payoff on this for them in the spring of last year, 2015, in the United States, where nine months of this relentless broadcasting of slick messaging, all of a sudden we had people all over the United States moving quickly along the spectrum from consuming to acting. And we had to lock up to disrupt plots dozens of people. And they were people that Al-Qaeda would never have used as an operative. Drug users, right? pedophiles, people with criminal records, mentally ill people, people who were resonating with this message were people Al-Qaeda would never have used because Al-Qaeda would carefully vet their operatives. And so to disrupt, we had to, we had to find and take them off the deck very, very quickly. So that was the payoff we saw. And we also saw a lot of travelers trying to leave the United States. Nothing like what the UK or Europe have seen, but a significant following to this. It's been interesting. The last six to nine months, the number of travelers, attempted travelers from the states that we've seen, has been steadily coming down. And so I don't, I don't want to fall in love with that, that, those facts, because it could be that we're missing something, that they're going another way, or they're going to Libya. I don't think so. I think something has changed in a number of possibilities. It could be the fad that is this death cult of ISIL has lost its uh, power with audience in the United States. It could be the fact that a whole lot of people are getting a decade or more in federal prison for traveling or attempting to travel is making a difference. It also could be that parents and siblings and teachers and religious leaders are more conscious of the risk and in intervening with troubled people, or some combination of all that. It could also be people have finally dawned on them that, that their so-called caliphate is hell on earth, especially for women, and, and that, or maybe some combination of all those things is driving down the attraction. I don't know, but it's been going on long enough, almost nine months now, the numbers have been down, that it's, it's, it's a trend that I think I'm comfortable talking about. We still see a slow but steady increase in the number of cases in the United States, which we have in every field office, of people where they're somewhere on the spectrum from consuming to acting. Mm -hmm. We're seeing fewer that we're disrupting towards the acting end of it, but still there's a whole lot of people who are consuming this poison, again, in private in a way that's very hard for us to see. And so it remains a huge feature of our work. How do you deal with them when they're moving into that encrypted phase? Because presumably up to that moment, you can kind of see what's going on. How do we deal with them once they move into the yeah. encrypted phase? Um, with great urgency, because then we don't know, are they going to go kill people in a restaurant tomorrow, mm -hmm. or is it three weeks from now? And so we have to get much more aggressive at trying to introduce sources to them, or undercovers. Mm -hmm. And it's a very resource-intensive effort, but that's how we react. If they disappear, then we try, obviously we try to use physical surveillance to keep an eye on them, but really in our work, and unless you've done our work, sometimes it's hard for folks to appreciate this, there's no substitute for us being able with lawful authority to get the content of their communication. Because metadata, which will tell us where they are, or physical surveillance, which will tell us where they are, doesn't tell us, so who's involved in this? Do they have weapons, do they have bombs, and is this about to go? And so we end up having to err on the side of acting very early in these cases because we're so worried about what we don't know. 
So in a situation like that, does the fact that something like WhatsApp is now encrypting everything interfere? I mean, I assume that must be a great concern to you at this point. Huge concern. I mean, that's a living example. As the Apple uh, case was in San Bernardino, of the problem we call going dark. Right? There are over a billion users of WhatsApp, and there are a significant number of terrorists and criminals who use WhatsApp, and that's a problem. It's wonderful for human rights activists or people who are in despotic regimes who want protection. All of that makes good sense to me, but it comes with this significant cost. And that's the conversation I keep talking about. We've got to sort out, so how do we think about that? And is there a way to address the costs and, preserve, and try and optimize the benefits? In this country, obviously, the Snowden revolutions have made people very suspicious of government surveillance. How do you, how do you address the, the need, obviously, to follow these people, and, but at the same time reassure people that if you did get power to get into people's encrypted messages, that it wouldn't get abused? Well, that's where people need to demand the details. Right? Again, the states is the world that I know best. There is a very complex regime of judicial approval, predication requirement, and oversight in the United States for the FBI to conduct any kind of electronic surveillance. It is really hard for us to get permission to listen to someone's phone calls or to collect their, their online communications. That's as it should be, but that there's a devil, there's an angel in those details, mm -hmm. which is sometimes I think people think, well, the FBI will just go listen to my phone. Yes, if we're able to go to a federal judge and make a showing of probable cause that you are a foreign terrorist, a spy, or someone engaged in serious criminal activity, and you're using that device to do that. That's what we have to show based on sworn affidavits. As I said, that's hard, but that's as it should be. And so I think folks have to take the time to understand. So how is it that the FBI conducts electronic surveillance and why do they do it? I think sometimes, again, that's why I talk about we can't have this conversation on Twitter because it requires people taking a deep breath and saying, so what are we talking about here? And why is the FBI so worried about this? It's easier to try and paint the FBI or the FBI director as an, as an enemy of privacy. I love privacy. Right? I'm a huge fan of strong encryption. But we also have a responsibility to keep people safe, and there are really bad people in this world. And to keep people safe with appropriate oversight and predication, we need to be able to know what they're talking about. That's what I'm so worried about. And I think that's why we have to continue to talk about this. On the other side of the, the sort of electronic debate is this idea of people using the internet, not just to recruit physical terrorists, but to commit acts of either theft or, te or terrorism, you know, there, there was that dam that, that somebody tried to break into. How much, how bad is that situation right now? I mean, how good are the cyber terror, the real cyber terrorists, and how worried are you about them? Uh, there really isn't what I would, what I would think you meant by cyber terrorism in, in, in any significant way in our world yet. By that I mean people using access that they obtain through the internet to inflict physical damage or to destroy systems or to try and harm people. The terrorist world primarily hasn't evolved to that point. They're using the internet to recruit, to communicate, to proselytize, to threaten, but they haven't yet gotten to the place where they are going to try and use it to damage. Mm -hmm. Logic would tell me that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, we've worked really, really hard in the United States to make it 
difficult for a terrorist to physically come into the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, if terrorists can enter as a photon, mm -hmm. right, at the speed of light, literally, um, in ways that would be, are very difficult for us to spot and stop. And so they will get there eventually. The, the cyber threat, to, to my mind, primarily is in the espionage space mm -hmm. and criminal. We've all connected our whole lives to the internet and because it's where we bank and our children play and it's where our infrastructure is, anybody who wants to hurt our kids or steal our money or damage our infrastructure, that's where they go. And so cyber investigations and digital investigations are part of everything the FBI does today because that's where our lives are. But again, the terrorist threat has not evolved to that point. That's a, that's a snapshot of where we are now. On the criminal side, you know, how much of it is people who are beyond the reach of, of the FBI, at least easily because they're outside the U.S. doing this? You, there's this, you have the sense that they're the Russian and Middle East and Eastern European gangs trying to break into bank accounts. Is that a stereotype or is that actually really what's happening? No, that's a big feature of it, but it, it's obviously much more than that. The, the challenge of crimes committed through the internet is normal conceptions of space and time and location that actually, without us even realizing it, normally govern our work or exploded. Mm -hmm. um, normally the FBI does work based on where it happened. Right? Bank robbery is in Chicago, so Chicago will work that bank robbery. Well, a cyber intrusion, where did it happen? Um, the physical manifestation of it, where the company is located that gets hacked, may not be all that meaningful, and the criminal may be anywhere in the world because the threat is moving mm -hmm. at, at the speed of light. And so what's happened is the criminals and the spies have shrunk the world so that they can be in a former Soviet bloc country in their basement attacking a company in Indianapolis or, or attacking something in Australia or in London or doing all of it at the same time. And so we have to think about it very differently. And part of our strategy with our British colleagues especially is shrink the world back. Because we face a situation now where the bad people think it's a freebie to kick in the doors electronically of an American company or an American individual, or the same in, in the UK, and steal what matters most to them. It's a freebie because I'm in my pajamas in my basement halfway around the world. So we really have to get to a place where those actors feel us behind them. Metaphorically, they feel our breath on their neck because that's the only way we'll change behavior. Fear will change behavior. So we work very, very hard to shrink the world to catch criminals all around the world. We work very hard to send messages to nation states that are sponsoring this kind of activity that we see you, we know what you're doing, we're gonna call it out where we can. We're gonna charge your people who are engaged in pure criminal activity with crimes. And our life is long, we have great patience, and the world is pretty small. So. You, People say you'll never get these actors that you indicted halfway around the world. Hmm, don't say never. We have many flaws in the FBI, but we are dogged. And people like to go on vacation. Can you give us a couple of good examples of where you feel like you've, you've had some successes in making people feel you're the long arm of the law? I think a number of Russian hackers, uh, Romanian-based hackers, have felt us. A number of them are in, in jail now in the United States because they felt us. Uh, we had one go on uh, to another country in the EU on his honeymoon. And because we're so closely connected to each other, addressing this in the EU, as he was departing to go back to Russia, his spouse boarded the plane. He did not board the plane. And, and now he feels that 
actually probably that literal breath on his back. And, and I think by naming the Chinese hackers who were not engaged in traditional state espionage, but were stealing for private account, I think by indicting them and publicizing their pictures, um, I think we sent an important message and also helped the community of nations kind of uh, grapple with and find a set of norms that will guide our behavior. How, how effective are your cooperation efforts with, say, Eastern European, the former Soviet bloc countries, China? Uh, probably different across yeah. those. Uh, very, very strong with the former, sort of the Eastern European nations because they don't want criminals, right? The Romanians are a great partner because there's a, there's a generation of folks, of criminals that they've dealt with who got technical education under Ceausescu mm -hmm. and then decided to use that to become criminals thereafter. So they are very good partners. They, they want to share ideas, training, information with us so that they can lock up criminals who are committing crimes from their homeland. Um, it's different with the Chinese. I mean, it's uh, a work in progress, I guess is the best way to describe it. I think we've made good progress in understanding the framework that we all should live with, and that's happened over the last six to nine months. That is this understanding that states engage in intelligence collection. They have since there were states. States do not and should not harbor, sponsor, uh, benefit from purely criminal activities designed solely to help private enterprise in that country. And that framework, the agreement between President Obama and President Xi, it acknowledges that framework. And so that's a major step forward. And we're working to understand uh, how is the framework being applied. It's probably too early to say, but that's light years of, ahead of where we were two years ago. Do you think in the end the, the Chinese end up being partners in this? I mean, the PLA is famously considered a source of cyber espionage and other nasty things. Yeah, I hope, I don't know is the answer. I hope that we become partners once we understand the framework that this isn't about what states do to collect intelligence for national purposes, that we can all agree that nobody should be stealing the design for a particular product so that product can be manufactured in the country where it was stolen from, and that we can become partners in, in investigating and stopping that which is purely criminal behavior. And I was just in China three weeks or so, and this, the conversations embrace that framework, and at least we're saying to each other the right things about our desire to stop this kind of activity. But again, I, time will tell. Do you think the fact that so many crimes can be committed through cyber means now is affecting the kind of violent crimes you see? Are people shifting from robbing people on the streets to trying to break into their, you know, Kmart computer files? That's a good question. Um, I think the people who would be grabbing people on the street and socking them over the head are too dumb to be the uh, cyber criminals who are engaged in point of sale frauds. I think it's fraudsters have found other ways and easier ways to commit their fraud offenses. The street criminals uh, are remain street criminals, and, and I, I really don't see the two groups overlapping much. So it's more the, the guys who might have been like selling those fake driveway things by walking to your door and now on the computer on computers. I guess those, so. Yeah, yeah. Kind of but the look, it requires a, a nominal level of intelligence and technical ability, and so I think it's attracting the people who used to send you letters. Um, people used to get letters from me from Nigeria saying I needed them to wire me money. Uh, now they get emails from me in Nigeria asking 
uh, you to wire me money. I'm not in Nigeria. I don't need your money. Do not wire me anything anywhere. Um, and so they've simply shifted the, the vector they use uh, to, the, to the place where we all live, which is online. From this side of the Atlantic, it, it seems like the U.S. is having a bit of an uptick in violent crime. Partly, I think we, we're all sort of fascinated with the, the gun culture. Um, but also there's been this discussion about whether the breakdown of relationships between minority communities and the police is having an impact as well. What do you think is going on? I don't know, but something worrisome is going on. And I started seeing the data at the middle of last year there was a spike in homicide occurring primarily in minority communities, so people of color being killed, in most of the nation's 50 largest cities. And it started at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. So the calendar was interesting, striking, to see an increase in homicide all about at the same time. And then the map was also confusing because the 37 or so cities that were seeing this, this spike in, in homicide, which turned out to be the same at the end of the year, 37, I think it is, cities experienced a, a jump in homicide, were around the country, but interspersed among them were other cities that were not, or seeing a decrease. And so I looked at that map and said, so what explains that calendar and that map? What does Sacramento have in common with Milwaukee? What does Orlando have in common with Dallas, but not Houston? and not Phoenix, and so what's going on here? And I was hearing privately from police officers around the country, both leadership and line officers, that they, their behavior was changing in some way. And so I don't know whether that's what's going on, but I talked about this last fall because there's a danger in the United States because it's happening in those neighborhoods to those people that we could mentally drive around it and I, I refuse to let that happen, at least from my place. Something is going on. And, and a lot of people say to me, well, it's, it's heroin. Well, in one part of the country. But methamphetamine is the problem in the other part of the country. Well, it's a gang, but that's a different gang in this city and that city. So the hard thing is staring at the map and the calendar, what is happening? And a plausible explanation, I don't know whether this is true, is that an accumulation of marginal decisions, almost unconscious, by police officers, Good policing involves getting out of your vehicle at midnight and walking up to a group of guys standing on a street corner and saying, hey, what are you guys doing? Do you live around here? Um, and having a conversation, respectful, appropriate, up close. And what could be happening is that an accumulation of thousands of decisions to stay in your car and not be part of something controversial is changing behavior. And then that behavior change is changing crime. I don't know but we continue to see that effect. And so we'll continue to talk about it. I've urged academics, get into this. See if you can analyze this and see what might be happening here. Because here's where we gotta get to. Police leaders need to insist that their people engage in appropriate, respectful, transparent, up-close policing. And communities, especially communities of color, need to understand that's the policing that saves lives and they need to demand it from their police departments, and also embrace that kind of policing. And I think if we can get to that place, whether or not that's the cause of this, um, we'll all be better off. So there's something going on that still goes on uh, that I think we've got to continue to talk about. Interesting. And we have some guns in the United States. 
Just a few. Yeah. You think that ever changes? No. No. It's a part, as you, you yeah. know, because you're an American, it's part of our, the unpleasantness from 240 years ago, uh, the embedded in part into our culture, uh, the notion that the, and embedded into our constitution, that the, the, the private ownership of firearms is at the heart of our legal culture, our constitutional culture, and you know, I mean, there's 300 and some million guns in the United States, and guns don't have an expiration date on them, so there will be a lot of guns in the United States for the rest of my life and my children's lives. Um, one subject that's very parochial for us, but I think very much on people's minds, is the, the question of whether Britain should leave the EU. And obviously that's for people here to decide. But do you have a view whether if Britain decided to go it alone, it would affect your ability to work with us or your ability to work with the EU and for everybody to work together to stop international gangs, terrorism, all of that? I'm going to totally dodge that question. Yeah. Well, while we're on subject of questions... Wasn't the, I think the president's coming. He'll cover that, I'm sure. But, but as you know, the Bureau tries to stay out of all things that might be political, so, so no comment, Brooke. While we're on the subject of things you want to dodge, Hillary's email. <laughs> um, when? Double dodge. Yeah, do you have any, is there any timetable when we might get an answer on where this thing goes? Yeah, there's, there's no timetable on any investigation. But somebody asked me uh, in the States about whether I, uh, I think the question was, is the Democratic National Convention a, I forget what the question was, a hard stop for you, or is that a key date for you? Are you doing this investigation aimed at, and I said, no. We aspire to do all our investigations in two ways, well and promptly, especially investigations that are of great interest to the public. We want to do them promptly. San Bernardino, I feel great pressure to do that well and do it promptly because people care about it. I get that people care about this investigation, and so we're working very hard to ensure it's done well and promptly. But as between the two, if we have to choose, we will do it well. Uh, but again, we aspire to do it well and promptly. And I, I'm personally close to this investigation because I want to ensure that we have the resources, the people, the technology, and the space to do those things and to do it in the way I hope we do all our work, which is competently, honestly, and independently. Um, and I'm confident that it's being done that way. Yeah. So no comment. <laughs> so I think that, that brings us to the end. Um, thank you, Director Comey. I think we've learned a lot about encryption, the, the, the difficult choices you face, um, and uh, I guess we all hope that you succeed. Okay. Thanks Me very too. much. Thanks, Brooke. That's Director of the FBI James Comey and journalist Brooke Masters speaking in London as part of the Aspen Security Forum Global. Coming up next week on the podcast, Breakthroughs in Cancer. We hear from one of the principal leaders in the Human Genome Project. Dr. Eric Lander works on applying genomics to understand the molecular basis of disease. He says research around cancer has moved quickly. Back in the, the in prehistoric times, the mid-1980s, um, you know, the number of cancer genes we knew was four. That was considered a lot, and it gave us some good paradigms, and it, we said, well, we know how cancer works in principle. But in fact, what we've learned since then by reading out now 20,000 different cancers and comparing them to the normal cells from a person is which genes are mutated in which cancers. And it turns out there's a list now of almost 300 different cancer genes. That's next week on Aspen Ideas To Go. 
Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.